Today's scripture is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. They danced in darkness, instituting the advent of all that will be, the eternal three in one, creating, speaking, singing, dancing, a syncopated tempo outside of time, not the staccato that was to come, and resolve into symphonies that will be, but beautiful give and take. Unseen footsteps echoing across chasms not yet created, joys resounding in harmony, When work occurs as it should be, passion proving louder than chaos. Hush, breath, life. Words spoken amidst the twirl, saunter of the dance, leading and following, originating and begetting, creativity released and creating. Creation reverberating down chambers of hearts, still in preparation, bursting. They danced in light, ripe with life. Danced in for seconds inauguration, swinging from one to two, stepped and spoke. Another moment broke, brimming full of possibilities, spirit hovering, chaos shepherded and separated as it should be. Formless and void, sectioned into thises and thats and here's and there's, flowing with the freedom of springing waters and meandering meadows. They danced in the not-yet-filled cityscape of space, danced in wholeness, where will be brokenness, where will be grace, danced in eager expectation, danced in new sights and sounds, danced in creation with joy that resounds, let us make man in our image. They danced in us as they danced us in, and it was good. It was very good, and we, we rarely dance, we wait. We who stand on this side of the brokenness, somehow recalling the garden days before us, once when all was as it should be, ear straining at echoes whose vibrations still reside in hearts, heart seeking hints half remembered. We wish, we long, we expect, we strain and press towards. We wait for the day when joy will re-enter our well-worn and used cityscape of space. We hope to dance in the darkness, to follow a syncopated tempo outside of time, not the staccato that is now, to resolve into symphonies that will sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her King. instruct you for for a while um 
If it's your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, we, that video that you just saw is this one, our creative team, who are volunteer men and women, did an incredible job of putting these videos together. And you're going to see one each week of Advent uh, that tells a story of creation. And next week will be fall and redemption and then restoration. And then the rest of the artists, they also did something to match that. And the art that's behind me to my right and to my left, um, I did this one. Oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> So it's really cool, and they, they put in a lot of work for that, and so we're thankful for that. Um, we are today, this is the beginning of Advent, December 1, the first Sunday of December in which we share in Advent. And I want to just tell you briefly a little bit about Advent and what we're doing over the next four weeks and before we get into the message this morning. Um, we have been traveling for the past eight or nine months in the book of Romans, and we're going to take a pause on Romans because this is a significant time in the church calendar. And by church calendar, I don't mean some calendar that we have together as redemption, but the historical church calendar of which Christians have begun to take this time to celebrate Advent. We've been doing this since the 4th and 5th century all the way on of a time of longing for our Savior. Um, Advent in itself, it's a word that means coming, it means arrival. Uh, We look forward to, we remember the birth of Christ And we read scriptures of the Messiah, the promising of the Messiah from the Old Testament prophets. And then we now sitting on this side of the cross and the resurrection that we long for the day in which our Savior will come and restore all things. And so it is a season in which we remember Christ. And what we want to do in these four weeks is look at four themes of Christ being Lord over creation. In week one, what we'll look at today is how there are two compelling stories that are being told And how Christ is the one who tells a better story, the story of Advent, whose power, the gospel, is greater than the power of sin. And the next week, I think we have a real treat in hearing from Michael Goheen, who is one of of the leading professors in missiology and theology, will be coming and teaching here, a great friend of ours, and he'll teach week two, which is longing for a Savior whose salvation is brought as sin. And then week three, we'll look at how God is going to restore and unite all things in Christ. And then week four, how he's creating a new community and what it looks like for us to live countercultural in light of the story of Advent, not just during this season, but throughout the Christmas, excuse me, throughout the year that we celebrate Christ. And so we're looking forward to that. Um, Our primary text will be Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, for the next four weeks. So if you have a Bible, uh, why don't you go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15. Um, In fact, hold your place in verse 9. We'll start there today. Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And uh, go ahead and keep your hand raised really high. And then someone will be able to get you a copy of a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we're handing out so that you can have a copy for yourself to read and to grow in God's Word. Um, As as you turn there, um, I know most of you are thinking, (laughs) is he going to say anything about that? game last night. And I know most of you guys are thinking that I'm going to come here and try to, you know, tell you how ASU scored the most points ever scored in the ASU U of A rivalry or how U of A allowed us to beat them and host the Pac-12 championship and how great it was to dominate the uh, Wildcats. But listen, I'm not going to do that, right? This is, I'm not going to take time about our service to do that. Yeah. But since you guys have been praying and every week it's been working, Stanford's coming to town on Saturday, so if you just throw up some flare prayers and say, 
Lord be with the sun devils. Uh, so <laughs> that'd be great. Um, so Colossians chapter 1, we'll get into this Advent. Um, and I know many of you probably didn't grow up around, just by a show of hands, how many of you guys grew up even remembering what Advent was or celebrating Advent as a family? All right? So not a whole lot of you, but some of you. And it's something for me, not into a few years ago, that I began to even think about Advent. And so I do know that before we could just jump into assuming everyone knows Advent, it'd be good to just explain it. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a moment in which we can say, Lord, we want to long for you. And what we're going to talk about today is what creates these longings is that we live in a world that tells a story of a story what I would call this consumerism. A story that says that if you buy things, if you get things, then you will be satisfied. But then there's this other story that's being told during this season, which is the story of Advent. The story that we can be satisfied completely in Christ. That Christ begins to reveal his love to us. That Christ begins to reveal his power through, through, uh, through us, through the gospel. That we can be freed from the, the um, idolatry of our culture. And that Christ begins to show that he is sufficient and so that, those stories, they're, they're heightened during this time. They're heightened during this time because, one, people are telling the story of Christmas. Um, they're telling the story of Jesus. They're, still, they're telling the story of Advent. And then yet, many of us, we're going to go crazy buying and shopping. And what we're going to say is there's nothing wrong with buying and there's nothing wrong with shopping. We just want things to be placed in their rightful place in Christ. And so this is not a season where we, where we, we make statements like we want to put the Christ back in Christmas or any of that. It's just a season that we say we want to long for our Savior to come and restore and redeem all things. Because every, yes, I've been waiting for that <laughs> for the past three years, you guys. <laughs> He's probably new, dang it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, is that we, we, honestly, we just want to just say, Lord, we, we want you to be Lord of our lives, and what a, what a great moment. And so there'll be resources that we're going to put online um, that make available for you, not resources that we've made, that we've taken, that you can do with your family. You can have the little calendars every day of Advent that you walk through. Your kids, if you have kids, you can give them candy or bike, whatever you want to give them. You can give them <laughs> during that time, but that's the time of Advent. But <clears throat> as we tell these two stories, I just want to paint two stories. One is a story of consumerism that essentially says that, you and I are not enough, and we need something else, and we can find that something else through purchasing and getting and more opportunities. And there's a story of Advent that says God is enough, and we don't have to go looking for him, but he left the comforts of heaven, and he came looking for us. And those are the two stories. Um, I, I want to start by sharing the story that I, I think I've shared with you before, is, um, is when I was a young kid, we moved from Los Angeles to Laverne, which is Laverne, California. It's a Southern California city, uh, nestled in, in between the Inland Empire and the San Gabriel Valley. Beautiful place. All the streets are paved with gold. And then the candy, you know, right? It's a great city to grow up. But when we lived there, there, there was this one street. Essentially, there's a street called Foothill Boulevard, uh, which is where Route 66 is. And um, the, the school that we used to go to when we first went there was south of Foothill. And basically, if you grew up in this town, you knew north of Foothill or north of Baseline, which is another street, was where a lot of the, the rich people lived or what we would call the rich people. And south of that were where the normal people live, which we, can, of course, you consider yourself the normal people, right? And then this, the school we went to was a mixture of whites, blacks, uh, Latinos, and so forth. However, the school, 
school up north, this brand new school that they built, were just a bunch of people with a lot of nice things. Well, the district decided to make this decision that they were going to take our apartment complex that we grew up in and then bus us to the school with, with all the other rich kids. And, um, and at the time, it seemed great because we're going to be at this new school. But for the first time, I start being around friends that had way more stuff than I could imagine. In fact, all the homes were two-story homes with three-car uh, three garages and a basketball court and a pool and a dog and an astro van, like everything that you would want, right? And it was just this portraying of the good life. What, what that began to do to the eight-year-old, nine-year-old me is that I began to have all sorts of insecurities that what if my friends found out where I lived because, you know, I lived in an apartment complex, and, and for whatever reason, um, up until that moment, before I went to that school, that apartment complex was amazing to me. It was like a lot of my friends were there. They had a public swimming pool where I learned to swim. Yeah. And, and, and it, was, it, was, it, was a lot, it was a lot of fun, right? Like everything was great. Everything was great. But then here's what happened. Um, through the course of time, I began to feel that sense that we've been there before where you feel like, man, I just don't have what other people have and maybe that's something wrong with me. I would get off on the bus stop a mile before my bus stop in order so that people, my friends, wouldn't know where I live. I'm like, hey, do you live over here? Oh, yeah, I live over, over here. And I kind of give this, like, general, like, over here, right? It's like, you know, just lie. And, and here's what I'm trying to show in that story is when we have a gospel that only speaks to the individual and a gospel that only speaks to individualistic problems and that says that Jesus came to forgive us of my sin, my personal sin, and I need to repent in Christ and live a better life, um, which is true. I do need to repent in Christ, and he gives me the strength that I wouldn't lie. What happens is you take the nine-year-old me and you say, hey, that's a lie. You don't live there. You live here. You need to be thankful for what God has given you. He's given you a home. He's given you food. He's given you family. All of these good things. He's your provider. So don't lie. Confess your sin. Trust in Christ's forgiveness and his strength. And that's true. But what we fail to begin to question and see is how big and how powerful the gospel is to speak to some of the things surrounding the, the individual decisions of this nine-year-old me. Meaning um, the culture, the story, the lie in which many of us believe. The things that are at work and things that we cannot see. Here's how Paul talks about it here um, in, in Colossians. He talks about in verse 16 that... Um, that he has created all things, this Christ, whether in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible. And here says this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul also talks about this in Ephesians. These rulers and authorities oftentimes when mentioned in the Bible are, are things that are, that are unseen. This is demonic activity. Meaning these are things that affect people. And so to try to describe my story and what we're trying to say that the gospel is far bigger than we can imagine, far bigger than just our individual sin, there's a, there's a diagram that I have here to try to communicate this. Um, this is called the Venn diagram. I learned this in college at ASU. <laughs> and a lot of other things too, guys. So right here we have the individual. Most of us, we see that, all right, sin is my responsibility. If I sin, I understand it's my responsibility. No one made me do this. I got to take responsibility of it. True. Not saying anything less than that. Um, and then maybe what we'll see sometimes is that here on the bottom, you'll see that you have the demonic and you have the devil. And we'll go, yeah, sometimes the devil does influence. But what we do is we kind of reduce that to like a picture, like on a cartoon character where there's the, like little Sparky hanging out on your shoulder telling you to do bad things, and we go, oh, maybe the devil's influencing that. But what we fail to see is the system and the structures. This is the way the world works. This is the way any particular cultures work. 
and that we, we fail to see that if the enemy is going to try to influence our culture, it's not going to just be to scare the individual, but if he can somehow shape, if he can somehow influence the powers that are already at work in our culture, the way that we do certain things, then the individual, out of his own and her own sinful heart, will begin to be more and more gripped by these powers. And when Paul writes this letter, you can take this down, when Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossae, he's dealing with that thing. When he writes to the church in Ephesus, he's dealing with those things. That he knows that the activity that's happened in the scene, that, and, the, and, the, and the things that are seen, many of those things are being influenced by the demonic. And this is not to say that everything that we do is, is demonic and everything is, you know, Santa's the devil. He might be. Um, I'm not exactly sure. And, and we're not like anti-Santa Claus or whatnot. We're not telling you that you should teach your kids uh, to believe in a lie or whatever. We're not, we're not saying that at all, right? We're, well, I'm just, that, that's completely up to you. What we are saying is that there are structures and the, the, there are demonic influences. And those things are powerful. In Paul's day, they had many gods. And Paul knew that those gods were at work. There was the god of sex. There was the god of technology. There was the god of money. There was, there was the god of war, who was Mars. There was the ultimate god, who in their time was their political system, who was Caesar. And the, those things, they weighed in on their lives and how they made decisions. And so Paul comes in in Colossians and says, there is Christ who is the Lord of creation. And now many of us, we hear that primitive language and we go, no, 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 no. Like, how is that going to change anything? I mean, hasn't science and reason been able to show that, like, there's no, those influencers are not here? I mean, we can reason our way out of it. We're just rational beings. And, and I love what Michael Goheen says. He says, we should realize that these gods are still at work. He says, when we see the millions addicted to pornography, it seems the goddess of sex is not dead. When we see the millions of lives trivialized and emptied by, of significance by addiction to technology, we observe that the God of technology still wields power. When we experience the seductive power of, the, of a consumer society that inflames us with the desire for the senseless consumption of goods and experiences, we must grant that the gods of wealth and pleasure are alive and well. It seems we are helpless before these powers. He's saying these powers are still at work in us. And the powers that are at work in us in our time, it's these two compelling stories. And it's the story of consumerism. And so what I want to be able to do in order for us to look primarily at verses 15 and 19 in Colossians, I'm going to read the prayer that Paul has in the original context here uh, for, for this church in Colossae. So why don't you start with me in verse 9. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may not, that you may, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul starts this prayer of this church. This church that, like us, is in a particular culture trying to live for Christ. A, 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 a church that is in a particular culture that understands that there are powers that are influencing them, things that they know that are affecting them, and how can they have a gospel that, that, that not only is just diminished to just forgiveness of sins, nothing less than that, but a power of God to restore. 
And that when we sit in this Advent time, that our, we should look around at the culture around us and we should see things and say these things create in us longings for God to come and fully restore what is broken. Because here's a story of consumption in a nutshell. You're not enough. You're not enough. You think about when you watch TV ads. Every single TV ad is telling you there's something wrong. In fact, that's a part of the story that we actually agree with. That they may not start with God as our creator who created us in his image um, and has value and dignity in our creation. But then it, it starts with, the, with sin, though it may not claim it's sin, that something is broken, something is wrong. And then every commercial is saying, but here's what you can have to fix it. Here's what you can look like to make it better. If you can own this, if you can have this, this will make your life better. And it, 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 sometimes it brings temporary gain. And so we go out and we consume and we consume and we consume and we consume and we realize it's never enough. It's never enough. And, and part of the problem is we, we are trying to, like the nine-year-old me, we're trying to keep up with the Jones, right? And no one's ever met the Jones, right? We don't know where they live or anything. Like you've never met the person who said, hey, we're the Jones. Check it out. <laughs> You're trying to keep up with us. That, that never happens. In fact, people who we think are, we look at many of our, our famous people and celebrities, and they get to the top and they crumble, and they're screaming at us, it's never enough. It's never enough. And yet we're bombarded with these things. And a few things about this story, when we believe this story, here are the effects. Not only do you have a nine-year-old boy who has massive insecurities, and this is whether you have or you have not, massive insecurities. Think about what it does to, when it comes to relationships. That consumeristic culture and the story of consumerism is not just what you can buy. What it does is it shapes entire culture. It, it shapes a culture that says that everything is up for revaluation. You think about something that you would buy like an iPhone. I can pull out my phone and it's shattered, so I'm not going to do it because I wasn't a good steward of it. Um, is, is I can pull up my phone and say, I know that there's, an, there's a better version of my phone out now. And I can get a better one of that. And I know next year there's going to be a better version. And I can't wait for the next year and I'm going to upgrade that. Well, we take that, even, that, that same mentality into our relationships. First, when it comes to, like, marriage, which is sacred, which is important, that when we, we make these vows between one another to have and to hold from this day forward forever, we say forever until, unless we die, right? And then what happens is there's, just, there's, like, now in our culture, there's this reevaluation. I sit down with people, and they go, it was good that they got divorced. It was good. And I get their circumstances. I, I understand that. But don't you think that even more so now in our culture, it's a lot easier to reevaluate if one person is not keeping up to their commitment and the other person says, okay, I get a chance to opt out, I get a chance to upgrade, and so I'm going to upgrade this marriage to maybe singleness or to something else, and that happens all the time? Well, let's just take it out of marriage and just in friendships and relationships in general, is that people don't become friends and remain friends for long periods of time, that there's no commitment to people, there's no commitment to a particular people in a particular place. I know I'm the biggest proponent of saying, move to Tempe, stay in Tempe, stay here forever. Let's see what God does. You see, he started it, and then there was a shopping cart, which, which they tried to, he, you know, he did something there. And then, and then there's going to be this really nice home, and then there's a redeemed Tempe Town Lake where water you can swim in, right? We want to be a part of, <laughs> it's like, there's Ricardo. <laughs> But we, I'm like, stay here. But here's the deal. Here's where consumerism comes into when it comes to the church. We all, like, we're just consumers. 
So we go to this church for this music. We go to this church for the teaching. We like this church because their children's program is great. We like this church because they have a sports ministry. We like this church because they don't have a sports ministry. We like have all these different things. And it, honestly, if you look at the demographics of our church and our age, and you look at kind of the statistics of that, um, most people are going to multiple churches. I mean, there's not a Sunday doesn't go by that someone tells me, oh, yeah, I love coming here. I'm like, oh, well, where do you normally go? Well, I go here, I go here, I go here. I'm like, bro, why do you go to three or four churches a day, right? There's football on. Like, go to one church, and like, it's like, but it's just a, it's just a commitment. Here, here's where it comes. There's, there's, there's young men and there's young men, women who think that they want to be married, but when they begin, de- these are Christians. When they begin dating someone who loves Christ, um, it's always that thought of, is this person going to hold me back? Is there something else better coming? Is there another man coming who's better? Is there another woman coming who's better? And sometimes we over-spiritualize it like, is this the one, right? You, God has not revealed it to me that it's the one. It's like, here, I'll know when God reveal it to you, when you say I do, right? When you say I do, I can come and go, it's the one, right? <laughs> like, that, like that's, that's it, right? I mean, but there is that sense that's in us. And so it's not just buying things. And nor are we saying we're anti-consuming, that we don't want to consume anything. No, if you don't consume anything, you'll die, right? You got to eat. You have to eat. And God created this world. We're just saying, look at it. Okay, let me, let me take a little further with the story and what it does with probably issues that come up a lot in our own church. And this is me speaking as a pastor. Um, first, we have this issue of pornography. It's like an issue like, it's a bad issue. Um, and that young men, and, and even now more increasingly more women, are, like, become addicted to it because of what it does to your brain. But it gets there at some point. And what happens normally is we go to some scriptures about sexual purity, which we ought to, and then we apply the gospel there and say, hey, here is what you need to do. You need to repent of your, your lust and see that Christ is better and your only comfort will come in Christ. And you can have accountability buddies around you. You can get computer software and you can do all of these really things that kind of guard your heart, um, all these things. But we as a church never begin to see at all of the things in the culture around us that are aiding these young men and older men and married men into this. Like the bombardment of the way that we dress, the way that we see images daily, constantly being pumped at us, that we don't think that a culture around us is not aiding this. And now you have a million dollar, multi-million dollar, probably billion dollar industry in the pornography world that is making money off brokenness, guys. Like it makes money off our brokenness. And that's the way it's set up, and it just perpetuates. Or you have women, women that are beautiful, created in God's image, that have worth and value, can never look at themselves in the mirror and never see themselves as the way God sees them. That because they are told, as they look at the multiple images, that they're never enough. That a husband can say, you are beautiful, and a woman can think, I'm glad you think that, but I don't think that that friends and people can say that it's not enough. It's not enough because they're told, you're not enough. You know, the average American sees 3,000 ads per day. The average American, America, right? (laughs) The average American sees that. And we know all of you guys, you guys are all above average. (laughs) <laughs> the, the average American, like, so we're constantly bombarded. Our kids are, I mean, the other day, you guys have seen that, that camel commercial, right? The hump, the hump day commercial. Have you guys ever seen that? Of course you've seen it. You watch TV. You guys are hooked. You're addicted. The story's getting you. And, and, um, and so I was watching a football game, and I'm always making dumb noises and, and yelling and stuff, and I was going, whoop, whoop. And then my four-year-old goes, hump day. <laughs> and I look at him like, 
this, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and you know what he's doing? He's sitting next to his dad watching these ads. And I tried to pride myself for not watching that much TV, but I watch hours and hours of college football, and it's just commercials and commercials, right? And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying those things are evil in themselves. I'm not saying that the people who are creating these commercials are evil and that we don't need these goods. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, but it is a story that's shaping us, and it's hurting us. It's hurting us individually. It's hurting, hurting us corporately, and we're, we're feasting off of it, and we believe the lie. You, you ever had a commercial so good that you literally thought it was real, and like you knew if you got that thing, it would make you like the happiest person in the world. You, you ever had that? For me, when I was a kid, it was the He-Man underwear. I've shared this story before. <laughs> I thought I would become He-Man, and so I begged my mom, "I need woman. I need these underwear, right?" And I put them on thinking I was going to become He-Man. Like, literally in my mind, I thought, okay, the commercial, the boy in the commercial, he put them on, he became He-Man, he was buff, he had a sword, I need that. You know, no one ever messed with me, my sister, my brother, they can't even phase me if I'm He-Man. I'm going to knock everybody out, right? So I go into the room, mentally, I'm thinking, I'm going to turn into He-Man. I put those underwear on, nothing. (laughs) And it was just like, oh, that's what it leaves us with. Like, that's what it leaves us with. That's the story that we have. That you're not enough, but get this. Oh, no, dissatisfaction, more dissatisfaction, and it, more dissatisfaction. And then, and lastly, I just want to share this with you. I came across this, this new disorder that's growing, and it's called dysthymia. And essentially what it is, it's a, it's a new disorder that's happening with people that it, they call it like kind of the fog of depression where it's lower-level depression where you look at everything as pessimistic and you're pessimistic about everything because uh, for whatever reason, um, you just feel like the sun doesn't come up nearly as much for you. And so um, it, it says that they don't know the causes of this yet, but the two that they would put forward is one, genetics, which is usually common, and the other one is it says because of all the information and all the images we see. I mean, you think about it. Think about your Facebook account, those of you who have Facebook. How often are you looking at what other people are doing or what they should be doing or what you should be doing, why you're not there? Um, I check my Facebook now um, twice a week because I know that it's always constantly something and you're supposed to know so much. And then there's all these events. If you ever invite me to anything on those events, I'm not going to be there because I don't look at those things. Everyone's trying to invite me to like a a pog party or something like, you know, some party that I've never even heard of that's there. Um, But we hear all of these things and we begin to become even more pessimistic, which is crazy because it's supposed to promise happiness. And so we see that when we live into this, it never promises. But then there's a bigger story, and there's a story of Advent. And the story of Advent is a story of a God who says, you matter. <laughs> and there's a story of Advent. The whole, the whole point of Advent is that God himself put on flesh to say, you matter. Like the story of redemption was not that God was trying to save face. He wasn't going, dang it, I created this world and they sinned. What is Satan going to think? Oh, let me me call audible and send Jesus. No, this was God's plan from before the foundations of this world, that he would create a world knowing that we would sin against him, but that he himself in infinite love for you, for us, that he would come and bring a power that is greater than any sin and any idolatry that would have upon us. The reason why as Christians we fight so hard for Advent as this culture because we know we live in the tension of the kingdom of God that has come in Christ but not yet fully. 
And that every single one of us, we want more. Even though we know more is not going to satisfy. It's a power that is greater than us. And what we long for is a power that is greater than that of sin. And when Paul says here in verse 13 and 14 that this God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, he's saying he has reached in through his sovereign arm and has brought us now into the kingdom of God. And there's a, there's a few things that we need to know in the story of Advent that will help us as we celebrate Advent, as we remember Advent, as we look at the consumeristic culture around us and we see the things. When you watch commercials now, I hope you can look at them and go, they're trying to trick me. What we taught our kids, and we've learned this from, from a, a good friend of ours, is when the commercials are over, they're supposed to say, who do you think you're kidding? And it's the cutest little thing to hear kids say that. Because you know they're trying, to, they're trying to trick you. They're trying to tell you you need more than what you need. We want a rebellion. It's like inside me, I just want to stand up and go, <laughs> like if I could whistle. Like I just want to just say no more, right, for all my Hunger Game fans. <laughs> like no more. And then Christ comes in, and he doesn't say, I want something from you. He gives. Christ doesn't come in and say, here's what you need to do. He gives. Many of our kids will be told during this season, uh, whether you're naughty or nice, it all depends on that. Christ says, no, no, I come for you. And he comes and reveals for us who God is. And there's three things that he reveals for us that Paul gives us here in verses 15 and 19 is that, that Christ comes to reveal God's love. He comes to reveal God's power and his sufficiency. That his love is for us to redeem us. His power is to free us from any principalities and authority that he has the power that is greater. And his sufficiency to say that, that when, whereas consumerism says that we are not enough, Christ comes and says that God is enough and that you matter and that we matter. Amen? The, the first is his love. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. And you pause there. It says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Again, Paul is speaking of a gospel that's big enough that, that understands the individual problem and the corporate issues that are happening in Colossae. And when he says he's the image of the invisible God, that language means that he is the full manifestation of who God is. If you want to know the love of the Father, look at Jesus. If you want to be satisfied in the gracious love of the Father, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Spirit is like and life in the Spirit, look to Jesus. That the God had put forth Christ in order that we may see him. He is the image of the invisible God. And not only is he the manifestation, that he's also the representation. So he represents who God is. If you, if you think it like this, um, there are plenty of uh, recruiters that will go, college recruiters now, who will go across to all over the country, recruiting people for different sports and different academics, and whatever recruiter will come to whatever high school will be a representation of that university. And their goal is to go there and say, here's what it's like to be at this particular university. We have these programs for you, you have these programs for you. Here's what campus life is like. They try to give you a picture of what is the good life. Consumerism does that, and their primary means of evangelism is advertisement and ads. Well, when God does it, he does it through Jesus. And he says, here's the good life. It's in my son Jesus. It's in his blood. It's simple. You believe in him. You trust in him. He has you forever. He frees you forever. And when you want to know what is God revealing, all you have to do is look through the Gospels. And when you read through the Gospels, you see one primary thing that Jesus came to reveal about God is God's love. Is God's love. 
I'll never forget being in a room full of all these manly men, like all of these big buff dudes and coaches and football players, and, and, and this is a few years ago, and just asking the question, and I, what I would often do is if God came in and he ripped off the building and he said, hey, I'm going to give you anything, right? If I'll give you anything, what is your deepest needs? Like, hey, not water, not food, don't think about that. What are your deepest desires? And all of them, Christian and non-Christian alike, all begin to say things very similar to to be loved and to be accepted. I mean, that's all of us. That's all of us. That if there's a way that we can have sustaining love, a love that we don't have to worry about if we're going to lose, a love that we don't have to try to earn, a love that we don't have to look pretty for, that someone would look at us and say, you're more than enough. You're more than enough. And the only way we find that is in Christ Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, he reveals the love of the Father. It's the reason why that most famous passage that we have in John 3.16, that, that John says that when Jesus speaks, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. That the whole point of the story of Advent was God saying, I love you, here's my son, for I can show you love. He says, no greater love is this than that one laid down his life for his friends. That words that God looks at our brokenness and doesn't try to make profit off of it. But God himself, who was rich, became poor. He gave himself for our brokenness so that we may be mended and healed and we would understand and live into the precious love of his father. And we've said this before, that when you understand who God is, you got to understand that the nature of the Trinity is a self-giving love of God. That the Father for all eternity past has been giving love to the Son. That he's looked at Jesus and he's loved him. And he's lavished his love on him. And likewise, the Son has looked at the Father and lavished his love on him. And the Spirit has accentuated that love. And that creation in itself was an overflow of that love. And in spite of our sin, that same love continued to pour out for us. And it came supremely in a manger in Christ Jesus that we can honestly say joy to the world. The earth has received her king. The Lord of creation is here to reveal to us something we've always longed for but we could never find. And that is the absolute love of God that transforms us. Amen? I love what Stanley Howard says when he talks about Christianity. And here's what he says about Christianity. He says, Christianity is the proclamation that God gives Christians a gift that they did not know they need. The gift then transforms their lives so that they are trained to want the right things rightly. That we didn't know we needed this love. We wanted something. Consumerism says that we can find it elsewhere, and then God himself comes to give us this love. And in Christ, he reveals it as the invisible God is revealed in Christ Jesus. The second thing that it reveals is his power. And, and here's what he says in the second part of verse 15. It says, he is, and he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, the firstborn of all creation does not mean that Christ were, was created. Um, it has everything to do with, less to do with chrono, uh, chronologically when he was born as opposed to priority. What Paul is communicating to these people who are understanding the structures, that the Lord in whom you serve, the one that came in the manger, that went to the cross, and the one that was raised from the dead, who ascended to the heavens and gave you his spirit. This Lord, this Christ, he is the Lord of creation. That the goal of creation is him. The reason why we wouldn't be anti-consumers, meaning it's wrong to consume, is one that would be to deny the very thing in which God did and created this world. And he created this world and he said it was good. 
And then even though sin tainted it, he still called men and women to be able to cultivate, to continue to make things, beautiful things. We just said our problem is what we're doing is we're worshiping the created things instead of the creator. And so there's a worship disorder. And that idolatry has power over us. And even our individual sin that is recognizing it of greed and of narcissism and self-centeredness that is exposed in this, that we need something to redeem that and put things in its rightful place. And what the story of Advent tells us is it's none other than the creator who's going to come and take his creation and restore it of which we are a part of. That now when we look to Jesus who has power and authority even over the demonic that we have no need to be afraid of things. And even personally, when it comes to our individual sin, we understand that sin will not have dominion over us because we are no longer under the power of the kingdom of darkness, but we have now in reigning with Christ Jesus by the Spirit and his kingdom. And so it's not that the Christian church is without power. As long as we have Christ, we are in his power. We understand the love of God that's been revealed to us, and we understand the power of God that's been revealed to us in Christ Jesus that we may live into his love. And so we're not anti-things or anti-stuff. We're just about putting the the right one in the center so that everything else is put in its rightful place. Amen? I don't want you going away telling your kids, we're never getting you anything because our pastor told us these things are bad. Right? And when you're really going, I didn't really have the money. Right? No. No. What we're saying, where Christ is as Lord, understand first, be filled with his love. Understand his power. And then lastly, Christ comes and revealed the sufficiency. That Advent tells the story of love and the subversive story of power, how God comes in a baby to begin to redeem this world. And then lastly, the sufficiency. If you read it for me in verse 19, it says, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The language there is saying that everything that is true of the Godhead, Christ came to share with us. It wasn't just we were just supposed to look to him, but Christ came to share this with us. If you read in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 19, or John 17, he says that the reason why he came is that so that we would know that the Father loved him and that we are as loved as him meaning everything that he had from the Father, he wants to share with us. That means whatever is his inheritance that he wants to share with us. That whatever is in God, and when you think about God, the beauty of God, what that literally means is that everything that is to be desired is found in him. So in Christ is everything that is to be desired. So where is it that consumption creates all new sorts of desires for us and new thoughts for us that lead us elsewhere is that God is saying every single desire that you can possibly have finds its amen in Christ. And so when we're hearing constantly around us in white noise that you are not enough, your body is not enough, you are too lonely, you need this, if you can have this, if you can have this relationship, if you can move these things around, you can get more. God is screaming, you're enough because he is enough. As long as he is enough and the fullness of deity is dwelling with him, we will always be more than enough in Christ. Amen? Hear me. Hear me, guys. I'm not, I'm not just saying this for a message. You need to know this. You will never be enough apart from Christ. But you are more than enough in Christ because he is more than enough. If you don't get anything out of Advent, it is that you are so deeply loved by the Father that he is not asking anything of you. He's not asking anything from you. That he himself comes to give you all of himself. Whatever sin offers, God always offers more because he offers himself. 
He is good news. Jesus is the good life. Everything that our culture will tell us in this season, what really matters, we say no, because Christ always matters in this season and in every season. Amen? When we understand our identity and the love of Christ and his power and that he is all sufficient and we look to him, supremely to him and only to him, do everything else, our relationship, our marriages, our battle with sin, our family, the things that are left unreconciled, our pain, our hurt, our longings, our desires, they begin to find their amens in Christ. The reason why we celebrate Advent is we want to reorient our lives around the center whose name is Jesus.